Welcome to OsteoTalk, an Osteopathy Australia podcast dedicated to delivering clinically relevant education for osteopaths to learn, connect and collaborate by drawing on a wealth of knowledge seen in practice as well as experts in other disciplines. Join us as we explore real clinical issues through interviews and discussion with top practitioners in Australia and internationally. For more learning and development resources, visit our website at www.osteopathy.org.au. Today on OsteoTalk, we have the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Rosalba Courtney. Rosalba has been driven by curiosity. Early in her career, she wanted to discover why some patients weren't responding to treatment. Searching for that missing link launched her career into the world of breathing therapy. To answer her own questions, Rosalba undertook a PhD on the topic of breathing and has published works in textbooks and scientific literature. Through her research and clinical experience, Rosalba has developed her own assessment and therapy protocols. She is passionate about sharing the healing potential of breathing with her patients and other health professionals. With 35 years experience as an osteopath, Rosalba's clinical knowledge is an invaluable resource for us. In this two-part interview with Rosalba, we discuss the different aspects of dysfunctional breathing and long COVID. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rosalba. I greatly appreciate you giving up your time for this. Thanks, Emily. My pleasure. So if we could just get started, if you could just give us a, a bit of a brief history of your career up until this point, please. Okay, so I'm going to be giving away my age, but I I sort of graduated as an osteopath back in 1978 (laughs) and as a naturopath. And I did acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine over a decade or so. And um, so then I practiced here and I practiced in America. Oh, actually, I just studied in America. I, I, I got my acupuncture license in the USA. And um practiced in America, came back here, set up a Chinese herbal medicine company. And I've done all sorts of things. I taught nutrition for about 15 years and worked in a number of, um, I guess you'd call them, you know, um, multidisciplinary integrative medicine practices. And then when I had my youngest child, who is now 30, I um, took some time out of practice and through a number of different circumstances, I got interested in this whole idea of breathing. And I had some patients who had strange breathing symptoms, which I um, realized needed sort of a breathing retraining approach. And so I, I got into the, the breathing thing. And in those days, it was probably the Bateko method. Uh, this is back in the early 90s. So I traveled to Russia and became the chairperson of the association. And then the more I got into it, the more I realized this is actually a really important, interesting area, but it goes way beyond this particular that particular breathing method, you know, and that particular view of what breathing dysfunction is. And the more the more I learned, the more questions I had. So I decided I couldn't, you know, keep doing this because I saw it in a position there where I was already training practitioners all over the world. And, um, you know, I felt that if I was going to be sort of a leader in that field, I needed to really know what I was talking about. So I went off and did a PhD um, in, I think, 2002 I started. And um, the PhD was called dysfunctional breathing 
its parameters, measurement, and clinical relevance. So I spent eight years on that PhD, and I developed um, a number of uh, assessment tools and a sort of a, a model for understanding dysfunctional breathing, uh, for assessing it and treating it. And that, that became what I now call integrative breathing therapy. So I published, you know, whatever, a whole lot of different research papers. I think I published seven or eight during my PhD, which is sort of considered to be a lot. And um, since that time, I've sort of continued to do some research and I'm sort of more focused on, I love research, but I sort of see myself as a sort of a clinician, teacher, researcher, you know, rather than a pure researcher because what I, I learned a lot about science and how it works and I am um, interested in bringing the science and the art you know uh, together and sort of cr creating a really strong ethical professional basis for you know the use of breathing within um, practice really for osteopaths but also for you know um other people who should yeah. be working with breath because but but within the osteopathic profession you know as an osteopath I'm very keen to get osteopaths really on board with understanding you know the importance of breathing because the the history of osteopathy really has within it this sort of idea that we're working with the body, you know, with the structure of the body to influence the function and to support health. But we also know that structure and function are interrelated and breathing is the most commonly disturbed function of the body that influences structure and structural development and neuromuscular function that we can actually influence through um, training, through teaching, through teaching of, you know, exercises and that sort of thing so that's it in a nutshell Emily a little bit kind of yep that's yep quite an incredible journey so far do you do you feel like breathing is something we really we don't look at enough as osteopaths you know I I, I did a survey with osteopaths once at a conference and I said you know how many of you um look at breathing and most of them said yes well, you know we're really aware of our patients breathing we're aware of their breathing and well what percentage of your patients do you feel have you know dysfunctional or slightly abnormal breathing and they said oh 75 percent and then it's like well, what do you do about that what do you do about that and their approach was usually that they did a diaphragm release or they tried to mm. mobilize the rib cage do you know and yeah. i think there's an, an awareness but there's not probably a sort of a disciplined structured approach to assessing and treating it's yeah. a little bit random and a little bit vague and this is a bit of a idea that look if you just do a few you know diaphragm releases and if you get the rib cage looser that that will improve breathing and sometimes it does but it's not enough because breathing is beautifully complex and interesting yeah absolutely I, I, relates to every system in the body pretty much in I a two-way relationship you know certainly we all we all have an awareness of it but it's just the lack of education and knowing you know the appropriate intervention to use and how to follow that up um, and you, so you recently, yeah. in the past 12 months, you've run a practitioner training course. 
you know, I've been running practitioner training since I since I finished my PhD, but it's uh, what happened over COVID. And and what I would do is run, you know, training courses that might run over three days and I'd have a couple of modules. And generally I would uh, overwhelm people. <laughs> it was just too much. I was trying to cram in to a short period of time. And then, and, and there are sort of people really interested in my work, but they're really scattered all over the world. And so what happened with COVID was I went, oh, I'm going to teach the course I've always wanted to teach and do it online. So I um, put together all my stuff into a six-month training course, which is like foundations of integrative breathing therapy. And so the last time, I'm I'm doing the second round of that this year, and I'll keep doing it. And I've got quite a few osteopaths in that course. Quite a few did it last year, finished last year, and I've got more in this year's course. Fantastic. So we might dive into some questions now. So could you start off by telling us how do you how do you define optimal functional breathing? Okay, so optimal breathing is um, you know often described in terms of you know parameters like you know your carbon dioxides within. Um, a certain range, you know, between 35 and 42 millimetres of mercury and your breathing is sort of, you know, regular, even, diaphragmatic, you know, so it's all sort of in this, you know, you're breathing about 15, 16 breaths per minute and so on. But functional breathing, I think that that's a very narrow definition and I don't think it really says it because people living in the real world are breathing the way they breathe for a number of reasons. Okay, so sort of people carry their history in their breath, you know, history of past airway obstruction, past diseases, stress, trauma, um, physical limitation, levels of fitness and so on. And breathing that's functional, in my definition, is breathing that fulfills the functions of breathing, meaning that, you know, breathing has primary functions and secondary functions. So the primary functions of breathing would be to maintain oxygen and carbon dioxide. And it also functions as a pump that regulates and changes pressures throughout the body. And those changes in pressure drive movements of fluids, anything from cerebrospinal fluid to lymphatic fluid to venous blood to whatever um and then you've got the secondary functions of breathing where breathing you know people use breathing as a uh regulator you know for self-regulation for addressing stress for focusing the mind for that sort of thing that's a function of breathing another function of breathing is that breathing is involved in supporting the voice so it's for voice uh production vocalization and then breathing also functions as an oscillating system so it's a it's a rhythm it's a rhythm that influences other rhythms and oscillations throughout the body so breathing is the prime sort of conductor of the orchestra (laughs) that influences these other oscillations so um and so when you've got functional breathing it's not like, oh, the person is always breathing diaphragmatically, always through their nose, always this many breaths a minute, always with the same oxygen and carbon dioxide. It's like breathing, functional breathing is variable. 
you know, it changes and it changes to fulfill different functions. And so what you want is, you know, I say that functional breathing has ears. That's an acronym for efficient, adaptive, appropriate, responsive, and supportive of, you know, other body systems. So, you know, that's it. A lot of people into breathing get really caught up in this idea that breathing's got to be a certain way. Do you know? They always got to breathe in this certain way. And 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 people get a little bit cultish about this breathing method or that breathing method or this bit of breathing advice or that bit of breathing advice. But really, breathing is this thing that's always being influenced by internal and external conditions. So breathing that's really functional can change and adapt and vary appropriately, you know, to really support the body's health. And that might um, sound like, oh, my God, that's all very sort of theoretical, but it's actually very practical. There are a lot of practical, you know, applications to those concepts. And number one is like, you know, there are ways of evaluating and testing a person's breathing to look at the functionality. Um, <clears throat> you can certainly do that. And that's certainly what I do in my, you know, in my assessment protocol. Um, and, um, you know, really one of the big problems is you get people coming to a therapist and they've got issues with their breathing. You know, they, they, they have discomfort you know or feelings of uh stuck or restricted breathing or they might report that they can't take a deep or satisfying breath or it never feels that they can take the air in or they can't get the air out or the breathing is excessively um kind of you know they do a lot too much sighing and yawning and you know they just have weird and they have weird breathing and you can just feel it you can feel it in their body you can see it they're not comfortable with their breath and so often you know the problem is that people in, in in trying to help someone whose breathing is disordered because it's neurologically disordered you know the breathing control mechanisms are just the wiring's gone off and so um often the in instruction that they're giving is like uh well just breathe in this certain way and then people become obsessed with breathing in a too rigid manner you know and they're relying on kind of an incorrect model to try and get their breathing right. Mm. Yeah. How how do you in practice assess dysfunctional breathing? Can you talk us through your the protocols yeah, sure. that you use? So, so my assessment is really quite simple. So it starts off with some questionnaires. And I think the article that I wrote for Osteo Life, I actually included a couple of those questionnaires. So there's one called the Nijmegen questionnaire. You get a score above 20 on that indicates dysfunctional breathing. And then I've got another questionnaire that was in that article as well that's called the SEBQ or the Self-Evaluation of Breathing Questionnaire. And it has a whole lot of different, um, you know, the sorts of symptoms that have been in the literature for a long time describing dysfunctional breathing, you know, like uh, I feel like that I can't 
get enough breath, the air feels stuffy. You know, the big one for the biomechanical breathing dysfunction is I don't feel like I could take a deep or satisfying breath. I notice myself sighing and yawning. Um, I'm breathing through my mouth, blah, blah, blah. So it's those kind of symptoms. And the score for that questionnaire, if people get above 20 on that questionnaire, it's a sign that they've got disordered or dysfunctional breathing in terms of the symptoms but then another thing i do is i measure carbon dioxide so i measure carbon dioxide oxygen at rest and then i give some challenges you know exercise challenge a hyperventilation provocation test challenge then look at recovery and um and that's for checking the bio chemical dimension of breathing because when someone's breathing's gone out of whack they don't regulate their body's ph properly with breathing and their ph has gone a bit off so they're getting the wrong impulses through their brain as to how to breathe and um they often if they over breathe for some reason they can't get their breathing back in balance so i'll do a little bit i'll do a three-minute test where I get them to do strong breathing and then I look at to see how their CO2 recovers. So that would be one thing. And then the other thing I do is I evaluate breathing pattern and the functionality of breathing pattern by looking at how the person's breathing responds to different breathing instructions and changes of posture. And, um, and I do, I, I developed a couple of tools. One of those is called the MARM, palpating the upper and the lower rib cage with the hands on the back, using a notation system <laughs> and a gra and a and a table to evaluate that. And then I look at heart rate variability as well. And that's my brief overall assessment that people will get the first time okay. I see them. Yeah. Do you think we can still get an accurate picture of respiratory function without, say, using the carbon dioxide measurements? I, I think if you're um, a breathing um, sort of expert, you know, then you really should measure carbon dioxide. But I think that you can get a sense just from symptoms, you know, that a person's breathing's off you can get um a sense just by noting you know that there is a, a bit of an abnormality in the breathing pattern you know in that they're always you know breathing upper chest um sternum shoulder rise you know that that gives you a sense and then if you really want to get that fully evaluated and figure out what the hell is going on and why then you would look further Okay, and just thinking at, of just thinking CO2. of the average osteopath that might want to integrate some breathing assessment, but maybe not using the um the capnometry. Is that what you use in yeah. practice? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Then you can just really then you just um evaluating the biomechanical dimension of okay. breathing, which and is one of the three dimensions of breathing. With um, so can you? Just tell us what happens with pH with dysfunctional breathing and, and what are the repercussions of a pH imbalance on the rest of the body? P pH is central to um, all chemical processes in the body. So 
our body needs to maintain its pH around 7.4 and it doesn't have to move very far off that before you start to get physiological dysfunction and even death, right? So I think um, on the alkaline side, you can't really get to eight <laughs> without getting into serious, like 7.4 to eight, like it's less than 1% yeah. that you can go in either direction. So the body works very hard to maintain its pH and it's got a lot of regulatory mechanisms for doing that. So the two main organs for controlling pH in the body are the lungs and the kidneys. The lungs do it by regulating carbon dioxide and the kidneys do it by regulating bicarbonate. So if someone is over-breathing or hyperventilating, they will blow off too much carbon dioxide. So they go into a state called respiratory alkalosis. It's quite common. But body compensates quite quickly, you know, within hours. <clears throat> and there are a lot of people wandering around out there with partially compensated compensated respiratory alkalosis. And what happens to compensate is that the kidneys start to excrete bicarbonate, you know, HCO3 minus. And the bicarbonate is our main buffer system in our body. So once your body has become depleted in bicarbonate, then it actually has a hard time regulating its pH. And a lot of systems go out of whack. And the cell becomes um, not very good at regulating its own environment. So underlying a lot of chronic illness is this pH disturbance coming from breathing dysregulation. And then people can't get their breathing right, you know, because they, they, they kind of feel that they're not getting enough breath and that their breathing is tight and restricted when actually what their problem is is that they're over-breathing. So they stay stuck in a very, you know, tight, vicious cycle. Yep. So that's why it's so fundamental. And, you know, people can have uh, disordered breathing and they can have had it for 30 years, 40 years, and with all these sorts of symptoms. And then somebody goes and fixes up their breathing you know, helps them, guide them, guides them to, you know, what to do, how to do it, how long to do it for and so on, to restore their breathing homeostasis. And um, they get a huge improvement in a lot of different chronic symptoms. Okay. And it, it's, so un, it's so undervalued and undiagnosed and unrecognised. You know, that, and that, that's the whole biochemical side of breathing dysfunction. But then the biomechanical side, um, you know, it's, it's not so much about pH, but it's just that if the body does go into respiratory alkalosis, if we just think about that and thinking of the osteopathic view um, of, you know, the osteopathic perspective, which is about often the neuromuscular, musculoskeletal system. So you get someone who's just, the thorax is always tight, their diaphragm is always tight. They always feel like they're in some revved up state in their breathing. And, you know, breathing is, a movement it's a motion it's a it's 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 a it's the most fundamental movement that we do and many muscles are involved in breathing you know the diaphragm the muscles of the rib cage but then there are all the other muscles that attach to the rib cage and i think there's about 24 of them or something and so um all those muscles will stay in a hypertonic state and be very hard to release 
until you fix up breathing because the whole person's got this incredibly sort of um, unnaturally driven, you know, ventilatory drive. And you can help for a little while by releasing the diaphragm or mobilizing the rib cage, and it can really settle down breathing drive and help them feel better. But they'll flip back yeah. to how they were until you really work with the fundamentals of their yep. breathing. Okay, so you've really got to find the origin of the problem. Mm. Yeah. What, what are some of the signs and symptoms that we can look for in practice that that might indicate that dysfunctional breathing is either a driver or a maintaining factor in our patients' presentation? I think being unresponsive to treatment yeah. <laughs> could be one thing. Yeah. Um, you know, they're just sort of unresponsive to treatment. They're just not getting better. And um, so, you know, it's like that neck pain that never goes away, that back pain that never goes away, all those symptoms that don't quite make sense, that they, they would be big ones. So you've got things like long COVID, you know, which mm. I know we maybe we were going to talk about, but also like in neck pain and back pain. There have been a number of studies now done showing that people with neck pain and back pain that's unresponsive to treatment or even pelvic pain, pelvic pain, TMJ pain. Can you Are you able to describe how breathing influences pain and, and movement patterns and core stability? You Try can choose just one. You could choose maybe pain or stability or movement patterns if that makes it a well, little let's, bit easier. let's do core stability because that's easy yep. enough and I think a lot of people sort of maybe know that. Okay. Right. So. Let's go just core stability. Um, all right, so what is core stability? So core stability is spine, it's spinal stability and it's intra-abdominal pressure. So one of the ways that stability of the spine is maintained is through, you know, it's through the correct main the correct and appropriate maintenance of intra-abdominal pressure, right? Make sense? Mm -hmm. You know that already, don't you? Yeah. So a lot of people, you know, go to train there. They go, oh, my abdominal muscles are weak. And that's why I don't have good core stability. But it's actually about what's happening on all four sides of that canister of intra-abdominal pressure, which is the upper part of it is the diaphragm. The lower is the pelvic floor. The anterior is the abdominal muscles. And at the back, of course, is the back muscles multifidus and other muscles so those muscles all need to work together to maintain appropriate you know core stability and the big thing that makes the neural regulation of that canister go off is when breathing is disordered so if you think about the diaphragm your diaphragm is a respiratory muscle okay one of our key respiratory muscles the key the number one actually uh, respiratory muscle but it's also a muscle of um, posture and motor control. So, and the, the brain has to integrate breathing and movement functions of the diaphragm all the time. So if I raise my arm, my diaphragm will fire. If I go up on my toes, my diaphragm will fire. And people's diaphragms can do strange things. You know, if you've got one of those, you know, if you've got disordered breathing and your diaphragm is hypertonic, chronically hypertonic, it will be low and flat and it doesn't properly move to regulate intra-abdominal pressure. And if the diaphragm is weak, 
you know, and you're in an inspira inspiration pattern where you slightly arch back, then the diaphragm actually sits high in the thorax and it, it doesn't come down appropriately to regulate and support, to regulate intra-abdominal pressure and to support the lumbar spine. So a diaphragm that's either hypertonic, low and flat, or weak and sitting high compromises the body's ability to regulate core stability and spinal stability. And, and then the other thing is the coordination. So you really want the diaphragm to be functioning in a coordinated manner with abdominal muscles and with the pelvic floor. And someone with dysfunctional breathing, they lose that proper coordination. And so they get pelvic floor pain, they get incontinence, they start to push down into their, into their pelvic floor when they, you know, breathe, sometimes in, sometimes out. But they, they start to push, you know, rather than just have a nice coordinated movement between the, the pelvic floor and the diaphragm. And, and they don't actually, um, they're not getting the nice reciprocal inhibition function happening between the diaphragm and the anterior abdominal um, wall. So, and it's not a weakness that you necessarily train with sit-ups or planks, you know, you've got to train it with breathing. Can you give us an example of some breathing exercises that would specifically address diaphragm function? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, because um, look, it depends what's going on. If, yeah, if you've okay. got, if you've got, it depends. It depends what's going on. So, so, um, so you've got someone. Their main, their main problem is chemical. You can never give them a diaphragm breathing exercise that was going to fix them. You've got to first restore their ability to tolerate more CO two, and to you've got to build their bicarbonate up again. And then the diaphragm will improve. Um, in some people where it's, you know, it's just sort of a biomechanical thing, very often you've got to really work on getting them to not hyperinflate. So you need to to train them to not hyperinflate, you know, to, to learn to take a little longer to breathe out so that will enable the diaphragm to actually go into its relaxed domed position. Um, so if that's what they need, that's what they need. You know, like if they need one, you give them that. If you need the other, you need the other. And then you've got people who have a diaphragm dysfunction because they've got a phrenic nerve palsy, do you know? And 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 so then you've got to work appropriately with that or it could be a neurological issue. But if they've got like just a weak diaphragm, it might be related to their posture. So then you've got to work with the whole posture. And then you might need to also work with some maybe some inspiratory um, resistance training, you know, to actually help strengthen the diaphragm using um, like a, a threshold device, right, where you actually breathe strongly against um, a resistance that comes on quickly. And then, 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 then you might have or, or you might choose to use another type of resistance where you just get a slow, steady resistance, you know, to train that. So it's kind of a matter of getting, um, you know, being precise. But that being said, most people can do 
with slowing their breathing down <laughs> and spending <laughs> a bit longer on the exhale. And that usually helps the diaphragm. So as a sort of a starting point, think about just getting people to slow their breathing down and get them to relax, getting people to relax their breathing muscles and slow their breathing down, spend a little longer on exhalation. That's usually good advice to give anybody. Do you think we can get effective results um, performing manual therapy to the diaphragm without following it up with regular home exercises? Do you know, I think sometimes you can because sometimes it's the neuromuscular dysfunction that throws the breathing control system out of whack. And there are times when, you know, people get a, a reset just from manual therapy um, and, you know, they can get good results and, and, and feel better and um, then feeling better, they then start to breathe better because people get into cycles where their symptoms make them breathe badly. So, you know, they're always feeling short of air. So, yes, sometimes, yes, you can. And I'm sure most practitioners out there would have had, you know, times where they were successful. But um, it's, you know, my my lens and my patient cohort is more about, you know, when it's not enough and you need to also work with breathing retraining. I think I see more severe um, patients. And so it's usually people who've got a more entrenched problem okay. that re requires, you know, working on structure and function at the same time. Yep. But I think, you know, anyone who's doing a diaphragm release, any osteopath who's doing diaphragm release, would do well to just give those sorts of simple instructions that I mentioned before. Just get people to relax their breathing, slow their breathing, um, spend a little longer on the exhale. You know, that kind of thing will help. The content discussed in each episode is the opinion of the participants only and should not be used as medical advice.